You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Your emotions almost always tell you exactly the wrong thing in investing, right? When everyone's talking about, you know, this tech stock and that tech stock and it goes up every day, you feel like, oh yeah, I got to get in on that. And when things are really terrible, you feel like, no way, I wouldn't touch it. But it is the exact opposite that is really what's going to make a portfolio do well. Your life is going to change. There are jobs, kids, houses. Are you financially ready to enjoy the ride? If you're not, visit planefe.com slash hermoney to schedule a free appointment with an advisor today because you've got a lot to look forward to, but you want to always be prepared. Hey, everybody. I'm Jean Chatsky. Thank you so much for joining us today on Her Money. First of all, I just want us to pause and take a breath. We're hearing from a lot of you lately, and you are nervous, understandably nervous about all of the economic data that is coming your way. At the time that we are recording this, and it is very early September, the markets are reacting to the recent job report, which showed that hiring is slowing a little bit. The economy might be cooling off. That, by the way, is a good thing, that the interest rate hikes that we have seen so far this year may, in fact, be doing their job just enough to bring down inflation, but not so much that unemployment skyrockets. We've also seen stocks tumbling with what was looking like a summer comeback very quickly turning into an early autumn slump. And even though the Dow was up a little bit in response to the jobs numbers, it's still down almost 7% from its height in August. Look, let's be honest, even in the best of times, investing can feel overwhelming. Many women don't know where to start. So we're asking the question, what does it look like to get started investing in 2022 or to gear up a bit, to invest more? And why in this 401k, set it and forget it world of ours, would you want to learn how to pick individual stocks? It's a really good question, and it's just one of many that we are going to answer today, all with the help of my friend Karen Feinerman, who you may know from CNBC's Fast Money. She is also the CEO and co-founder of New York-based hedge fund Metropolitan Capital Advisors, which she started in the early 90s, and she's the author of the New York Times bestselling book, Feinerman's Rules, Secrets I'd Only Tell My Daughters About Business and Life. Hey, Karen, welcome. Thanks for having me, Jean. Good to see you. Well, thanks for being here. Before we dive into this show about investing in this market or any market for that matter, I want to tell everyone why you and I are here together today specifically. On September 14th, Her Money is launching a brand new platform. It's called Investing Fix, and it's another way that we're going to be learning together about building wealth. Karen and I are partnering on this adventure, and our goal is that Investing Fix offers a roadmap to investing for all women. 
We're doing it investment club style, meaning we are building a portfolio together. We're discussing the moves that successful investors make and really demystifying everything there is to know about putting money into the markets. And as with all the things we do here at Her Money, we are speaking directly to women because the truth is we're a little late to this party and it has really hurt us. On average, women keep about 70% of our money in cash compared to 60% for men in general. And there have been a lot of studies on this. We tend to be more risk averse. It's time for us to change all that. We have more years than men that we need to cover at the end of our lives. We need to make up for years and years and years of a gender wage gap that is not closing fast enough. And so we want to do our part to usher in a new era where female investors are empowered to sit in the driver's seat of their financial lives. Karen, I know that for you, investor education for women specifically has been a passion. Tell me why. It has to do with my mother. So I was one of five children, four girls and a boy, and she just conveyed this message again and again that you have to be financially independent. You have to have power in a relationship, or if you're not in a relationship, you have to have power. And so it was ingrained in us that we were going to need to be financially independent, and how are we going to do that? And so for me, the sort of most direct way is, okay, well, let's go to where you make money, which is Wall Street. And that's what I decided to do because I knew I wanted to have power. I saw how it hurt her in the relationship, always deferring to my father. And uh, that wasn't the life that I wanted to lead. And the same for my sisters as well. And for some reason, she didn't convey that message to my brother. It was just kind of assumed. He was a man. He was going to need to be independent. She must have conveyed that message extremely well. I mean, your sisters are just a a class in female empowerment. Your sister, Wendy, is a successful movie producer in Hollywood. I'm um, I'm I'm not remembering what your other sisters do. What do they do? Well, so one was worked, uh, Leslie worked at a hedge fund for many hedge funds, actually, before becoming a stay-at-home mom for a few years and then an entrepreneur. And then my sister Stacy's been in a number of Silicon Valley uh, tech startups and tech, a few companies that she's brought through the IPO process. So, um, but I always used to joke, my mom literally would say, I buy my girls Calvin Klein clothes. And then when they graduate college, they have to figure out how to pay for them themselves. And that was her Calvinist philosophy. So (laughs) it's very different than what you might think Calvinism is, but that was the philosophy. And so whenever I see a Calvin Klein sign, I think of my mom. That's great. Your mom sounds like she was amazing. I wish I had had the opportunity to meet her. Let's switch gears and let's talk about strategy. Over the course of our lives as investors, we're going to see all kinds of markets. We're going to see bull markets. We're going to see bear markets. We're going to see everything in between. Do we need different strategies for different times? I don't really think you need different strategies for different times because to me, the most sensible way to invest is for the long term. And so that strategy works in the long term. So 
we don't know what kind of market we're going to have when we begin investing. And it actually doesn't even really matter, especially because the market's not going to tell you whether it's about to end a bull run or about to begin a bear run. And so we can't know that. So let's not even try to focus on it because in the end, it doesn't matter. So is the right approach instead to focus on us and what life stage we're at? Your book, Feinerman's Rules, it's all about the advice that you'd give your daughters about money and business. Is there different advice for younger women who are just starting to invest versus older women who might be married or have kids or be close to retirement? So there is a different advice in terms of if you have an allocation of money you want to invest in the market, it's going to be the same. I always use the same criteria to pick companies. I do think that where you are in life does make a difference because obviously when you're young and you have, when you're very young and there's just you and that's all you need to worry about, then you can spend more money investing. And and you know this part of the life cycle investing far better than I, that When you're in a much later stage, you need to be certain that you have a comfortable cushion Mm -hmm. and it probably makes sense to have less money in the market at that time. But to me, it doesn't uh, affect the kind of companies that I would choose to have in a portfolio. Regardless, I'm sort of age blind to what makes a good investment. I want to dig into picking companies and the whole idea of picking individual stocks. I mean, these days, we could throw all of our money in a target date mutual fund, just keep putting it in and know that we will probably get to retirement in very, very good shape. And yet, we've been beta testing the investing fix program, you and I, for the last six months. We have a nice group of women, almost 50 at this point, who gather with us on a biweekly basis and we tee up investments and we talk about them and they vote on which ones to add to the portfolio. It's fun. We're getting an education along the way. We're learning a lot. I'm learning a lot about how different companies work and how they should be valued. Where do you think the value is in learning about individual stocks, even if you are really a 401k index fund or target date fund kind of investor? Well, first thing I want to say is there is absolutely no shame in being that kind of investor, that 401k target date, or, you know, compiling a few ETFs. There's absolutely no shame in that. And it can be an excellent strategy. And there's a lot of good ways to do it. The reason to focus on individual companies is it's interesting. It's interesting to learn how businesses work and how the market values them and how to sort of think about what makes a good investment. And a lot of times it could be a reason so simple as uh, here's a woman who loves product XYZ, you know, whether it's Lululemon or Peloton or whatever it is. And thinks, you know what? I love this so much. I want to think about investing in this company. And also, it's sort of so pervasive in the news, you know, different companies and how they do and how their stock does. And so we want to sort of demystify it. You know, how do you know what to invest in? And I can tell you with certainty, I don't always know. And sometimes I get it wrong. 
but I do know the kinds of things to think about to help me get it right more often. And so that's what we've been focusing on. For me, it's kind of table stakes for a cocktail party. I am a mutual fund kind of investor. I own a few individual stocks and I've been investing alongside our group investing fixed portfolio with my own money on the side. But I also, I just want to sound smarter when I'm participating in these conversations. I want to understand what's happening in the news and in the economy. And it seems to me, I mean, how, how long have you been on CNBC now? 15 years, which is unimaginably long. Well, I was on the Today Show for 25. And it seems to me that more than ever, what's happening in our economy is actually not just being covered on CNBC, but it's being covered on the early morning shows. It's being covered on the 6.30 news. You turn on the radio in your car. You hear people talking about it. I mean, it's not unusual to turn on a talk show and hear them talking about the economy. And so I feel this need to really understand it much more than I did when I first got out of college. What do you think it is about economics that's become such a part of everyday life? And what do we really need to understand about the economy so that we can parse the news and and walk away feeling like we have a handle on what's going on with our money? That's a great question. I think part of it is sort of the democratization of investing. And now you can invest with zero commission and you can invest with having a very small amount of money. You can even invest in slices of shares if you can't afford a whole share. So it's sort of opened up the world of investing to many people who would have been shut out or thought that they were shut out before. And so once you sort of, you know, have a stake in the game, you really focus on it. And it's it's fun as well. And there is that sort of cocktail party element of it for sure. But there's also... One of the things I like about it is seeing your companies, how the economy affects them. So I'll give you an example. So we've talked about Target in our investing club. And one of the things that happened to Target and Walmart and some others was they had too much inventory. Mm -hmm. And so if you go to a Target now, you're going to be looking for that and thinking about it as an investor, not as a shopper or maybe both. But it's sort of fun when you do that. Right. When you understand that Target and Walmart and Macy's are overloaded in the leggings and the coffee makers and the other products that people wanted in the recession, you can then use the information in a couple of ways, right? You can use it as an investor. You can think, is this a good time or not such a good time to buy these companies? But you can also understand, hey, They've got a lot of this stuff. If I want to buy my mother a coffee maker for the holidays, I can go get it now, probably get a pretty good deal on it and just put it in the closet for a couple of months and know that I was just smart about what was happening in the world. Exactly. That's a great example. Exactly. Because I, you know, Target's strategy right now is let's just get rid of all that inventory, whatever, however much we have to put it on sale, let's do it so we can go into the holidays with a lean inventory and be able to price it right. 
meaning price it higher. So your example is an excellent one. When we describe investing as fun, I worry a little bit about that. I think sometimes, and I'm thinking about all of the the Robin Hood investors and and the Reddit investors who got sucked in during the pandemic and were starting to play around, but play around with real money, some of them got hurt. And so I'm wondering where you think the line between education and fun actually lives. And what are the top, say, five things that you think everybody actually should be paying attention to about the economy in order to start getting a real education? So that's there's sort of two parts to that, that meme investing, which is so not my out of my element completely. To me, it's just an idea of a what you know, what I think of the greater fool theory, which is when you're buying GameStop, it got to 400 or whatever. I know the stock split since then. You really just hope someone else comes along to pay more. One can't, I can't come up with an economic model that showed that there was value enough to have in any scenario that stock trading where it was. So that's a, just a completely different game that I don't understand. I know it will bust at some point. I don't know when, and I don't know how high it will go. It's actually, it's hung on longer than I thought it would, to be honest. So I just ignore it. I'm fascinated by it from a psychological point of view, but I ignore it. And I sort of come back to, all right, what are the basic things we really need to understand about the market and about the economy right now? even though that's not going to change the way we invest. So part two was, what are those basic things, right? If you were giving your daughters lessons and you really need to understand these five things before you buy a stock, before you start to make an investment, maybe there are five things about the economy, but maybe there, maybe a couple of them are about companies in general. So I guess to focus on the companies in general, what I really look for is a company that is particularly good at their business. And that's really important. So if we pick one today that happened to be in the news today, Lululemon, Mm -hmm. right? We all know Lululemon. They are particularly good at their business. And what does that mean? That means that they sell leggings and active athleisure and related goods, and they do it with a better product and a better margin. They're able to sell aligned pants at whatever they are now, $180, because it's a fantastic product and they run their business really well. So that's an important thing. The value of a brand, I think, is a really important thing. And you can see, you can compare them to other companies that are similar and see how much better they do, how much more efficient they are, and how much more they earn of every dollar of revenue, how much they keep as a business. So that's really important. And then you also wanna look at a balance sheet of a company. What's their own financial house? Is it it in order? And that's really important. Many, many companies, perhaps most companies have debt on their balance sheet and that's absolutely fine. Think of it like any household where they have a home and a mortgage. Having that mortgage debt doesn't mean you're not running your sort of financial home properly. It's just a tool. So those are the kinds of things I look for. Management team, 
sometimes I focus on a particular industry that might be in flux. That's sometimes a catalyst to look at something, but really it's the sort of nuts and bolts of their business. And then what's the stock price? And one of the metrics we look at in our investing club, we look at price to earnings ratio. That's sort of the first metric that I look at. And I look at it, how is their, what's their PE ratio relative to how it's been over time? That's of interest to me. And to their competitors, that's of interest to me. And to the overall stock market, which has a general PE as well. So that's, those are sort of the a few basic things. And then the management team will probably be the, the rounding it out. But the power of the business itself is first and the moat that it has. Lululemon is so interesting to me in particular because I thought initially, you know, this is a company that will do incredibly well with women. But there was a Wall Street Journal article just a couple of weeks ago about how men are obsessed with their pants. And I actually called my daughter because it was her boyfriend's birthday. I said, what can I get for Adam? You know, can I send him a gift card or something? What would he like? And she's like, he is obsessed with Lululemon pants. Just get him a gift card to Lululemon. And he he loved it, right? It was the perfect gift. So good at their business, not just for women, but for men as well. Right. They're always looking to grow and to evolve and opening up that men's business has been gigantic and ABC pants are everywhere and they've just done a tremendous job. What's interesting to me is that as we look at all of these different companies, these are the kinds of questions that we're asking. You know, what do they do? How do they make their money? What do we like about them? What don't we like about them? What are the risks? And would we buy them at the price that they are today? It's an interesting way to just frame the question that you're asking all the time. And then you need to ask it in light of the current market. Karen, I want to break down the current market events for our listeners. But before we do that, let me just remind everyone that this show is sponsored by Edelman Financial Engines because life comes at you really fast. There could be wedding bells on the horizon, a promotion around the corner, a grandchild on the way. Are you financially prepared for everything that life has in store? Well, if you have a well-crafted plan, then you actually can be ready. Visit planefe.com slash hermoney to schedule a free appointment with an advisor. You'll work with an expert to review your current situation to develop a long-term strategy to help you embrace life's biggest moments. Schedule your free appointment today. I'm talking with Karen Feinerman, co-founder and CEO of Metropolitan Capital Advisors, panelist on CNBC's Fast Money, and my partner on Her Money's new Investing Fix Investment Club. All right, let's talk about current market events. Is today's market something that you've seen before? You know the expression, you're never in the same river twice. I don't know that expression. I've been in a lot of different, oh, okay. <laughs> because it's always, the currents are always changing, but I've been in rivers a long time and there's nothing wildly different about each particular one is has its own little idiosyncrasies. But no, this is sort of a, we're in a different part of the economic cycle right now. And I've seen that cycle before a few times. Where do you think that the opportunities are right now? 
I mean, when you're thinking about where to put money, the markets have been down. I keep thinking about Jason Zweig wrote a column about stocks versus socks. Jason, over at the Wall Street Journal, said, just take the T out. And then you would look at it and you would say, well, if socks are on sale, I'm going to buy all my socks for the year. Does he have a point? Absolutely. I think, you know, it comes back to the what I was saying before about you never know. The market doesn't tell you when it's about to become a bull or a bear market. And so the strategy that you often talk about of dollar cost averaging makes so much sense because you buy more stocks when the price is lower with that same $100 or $500 or whatever it is. And you buy fewer when the price is higher. But to me, the main thing that's so important and such a great tool for the, when I'm talking to dollar cost averaging is it takes the emotion out of it because your emotions almost always tell you exactly the wrong thing in investing, right? When everyone's talking about you know this tech stock and that tech stock and it goes up every day, you feel like, oh yeah, I gotta get in on that. And when things are really terrible, you feel like, no way, I wouldn't touch it. But it is, in fact, opposite that is really what's going to make a portfolio do well. And so taking the emotion out of it helps you do that. And yet I've heard you say just because a stock has been beaten up doesn't mean it's cheap. Right. Exactly. That's also, it sounds counterproductive to what I just said, but what it means is just look at it as a business. Forget where it traded at one point in time. That's not relevant. What's relevant is, should it be trading at this level? And so many stocks, even with the market having come down a lot, I would say, no, they shouldn't be at that level. They're just too high. There's just too much excitement built in for the future versus what I think the reality is. And stocks that go down a lot, that weren't super expensive, but went down a lot anyway, are still not cheap. They're lower, but they're not cheap. And occasionally, sometimes something goes up and it's actually a better buy higher than it was lower because something in their business has changed. They got it right or they have a new product or whatever. There's a lot of reasons that could happen where they started to improve their margins and run their business better. So um, I look at it right now, this snapshot, and try to not pay attention to where things traded before because it's it's very often a red herring and irrelevant information. How do you approach risk? What does risk look like to you? I mean, we hear over and over again that women are risk averse. What does it feel like to you? Well, it's so interesting. One thing, just as you were saying it at the opening of this podcast was how women have more cash. And they do that to be risk averse. And I would argue that they are taking tremendous risk by being so much in cash, right? And sometimes we do it in our personality. Sometimes we're hesitant to speak up because it's risky. What if we're wrong? And I would say not speaking up is taking a risk. So let's address some of the risks. Let's be in the market. That's one of the ways that you're going to improve your financial life to have some part of your portfolio in the market. And then in terms of risk, I never, never have margin debt, right? I don't ever want to be forced out of a position. Explain margin debt for people who don't know what it is. 
So margin debt is when you buy a stock, let's say you buy XYZ stock for $50 a share, and you're going to buy 10 shares, it's $500. But you don't have $500, you have $250. And let's say you have an account at Robinhood or someone like that, they're going to lend you the other $250. So as long as XYZ stock goes up, that's great. But what happens when XYZ stock goes down? When it goes down from 50 down to 40 or 35, let's say Robinhood's going to come back to you and say, you need to put up more cash. Well, that's probably a time you're not feeling like you have a lot enough cash. And if you don't, Robinhood's going to say, all right, we're going to force you out of the position. You got to sell your stock at 350, just in this example. I don't know Robinhood's actually specific triggers. And you pay Robinhood back their $250 loan and you're left with $100 and you started with 250. Well, that's not good. Having margin debt doesn't allow you to sort of stay in the trade if you want to. And so I never have margin debt. That's a risk I don't want to bear and don't think it's smart to bear. So, and then other risks that people sometimes make are having too much in one thing. If you're working for a company and you have a lot of stock in that company, yes. if you were to lose your job and the stock goes down during the same period of time, you're really up a creek. Right. Another way to look at it is, do I invest in things that are risky, like a Bitcoin or something like that? And so... I do have some exposure to Bitcoin. I have owned it for a long, long time and was able to take all of the money that I invested off the table and still have sort of skin in the game, which I do. If it goes to zero, that's fine. It will be a very minor loss. If it doubles, that's fun. It will not change things either on the upside, but I am intrigued by the asset class. I would never never invest an amount in something that would be too painful to lose if I thought it was inherently risky. And I do think Bitcoin is inherently risky. So that's a kind of risk that you can mitigate with the size of your position. As you've been watching the, the women in Investing Fix, do you sense them getting more comfortable with the idea of risk? Does having more information not just make it fun, but make the risk more palatable? I think it makes it more understandable what the risk is. And when one can understand the risk, then you can make more of a sort of educated assessment of, all right, is that a risk that I'm willing to take? And, you know, I've been really impressed with the women. They're, you know, a wide variety of experience. Some have a fair amount of experience and are translating sort of what they learned in their job to investing. And some are really new to it and just want to learn. And, you know, they'll ask, what does this term mean? What is that acronym? What, and that's great because no one is born knowing what a PE ratio is. You have to learn it somewhere along the way. And, you know, so what I like is sort of having this forum where women feel comfortable saying, I'm sorry, what is a PE ratio? And then I like to hear how they think about you know, a Target versus a Walmart or something like that. And, you know, a couple of times we've had women present their ideas. And I've been really impressed with the amount of work that they do, their knowledge of the business. If I ask them questions or someone else in the forum asks them questions, they have good answers why 
this or that is, you know, the thing to focus on. So, you know, talking about ETFs and I suggest one and someone else had even, you know, I thought a better suggestion and we think about why and what are we trying to achieve? And I don't know, I, I learned from them as well, but some of them also are, you know, really somewhat new to the game and want to, they just want to learn and absorb. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm learning along the way and getting to know about different women and their different areas of expertise. And so it's been fun for me and it's been fun for me working with you as well. As we wrap this up, as you're looking out into the economy next year, I mean, there are, as we just mentioned at the top of the show, a lot of balls in the air right now. Where do you think we're going? I think we're in for a bit of a tough time because interest rates sort of drive everything, right? When interest rates are low, the economy can grow. When they're higher, it can stifle the economy. And the Federal Reserve now needs to address inflation. And the way to do that is to raise rates. And a byproduct of that is a slowing economy. And uh, it's a painful, it's painful medicine, but I think it's necessary medicine. So I think about what businesses can survive that. Do they have balance sheets? Are they a type of product that we need to use regardless of how slow the economy is? I think about that. And then the other big thing I think about is we are really at an inflection point in energy, right? What's happened in Ukraine has changed the energy map of the world dramatically. And so the U.S. is in a unique position of being energy independent, which imagine if this were the 1970s and we weren't and what would be happening right now, um, as well as we can supply the world. And so the backdrop of energy is actually appealing. And yet a year ago, I would say we've got to really think about how the EV evolution will change the energy markets and but that's really been put on the back burner right now as the world addresses their severe energy strategic position because, I mean, Europe is just going to have a disastrous time this winter and we're a global world now. And so Europe, you know, having a tough time will be also weighing on the United States, I think. Nevertheless, I continue to invest and think about where do we want to put money? And what opportunities does this environment create? And we'll continue to invest right along with you. I know that Catherine has twisted your arm and you've agreed to stick around and help us answer some questions from our listeners. So thanks for that. But let me just take a quick pause to remind everyone that Her Money is supported by BCU. BCU is a credit union providing a wide array of financial products and services for its members. If you are currently exploring the auto market, BCU offers financing and refinancing options, as well as an exclusive auto buying service that can save you not just time, but also money. You can learn more at bcu.org. Karen Feinerman is sticking around with me for Mailbag. Thanks for that, Karen. Of course, happy to do it. What do we have? Our first note comes from Ellen, who writes, Hi, Jean, my son is working his way through college and has a real paycheck from the university where he works at the student gym. He told me he'd like to invest some of his money in crypto. 
I'm pushing for him to invest in the stock market instead. I'm happy for him to take risk, just not in something as risky as Bitcoin. What would you recommend we do? What platforms should we try? Are there any quote-unquote cool investing platforms for younger people that will help my son feel like a Wall Street tycoon even though he's 20? Thank you so much for all you do for women and our children. Love your show. Well, Ellen, thank you so much for the question. I love that you're leading your son in the right direction. I got to say, Karen, I don't think cool is about the platform. I think that the whole idea of making money is cool. The whole idea of making money absolutely is cool. And I think you're right. It's not the platform. It's his portfolio. And the whole idea of wanting to learn is very cool. And you're going to make mistakes. And you know what? That's also going to be cool. Not at the moment, but you're going to learn something from it. And so good for your son. In terms of the particular question about Bitcoin, I just want to add one thing. Well, I think it's very risky. I do think at his age, letting him take a very small defined amount of money to put in Bitcoin could be a very educational endeavor. And so I think it's probably worth doing actually. But what's also really important is I love the idea of him wanting to take the money he works hard for to put in something and to grow it. And to start so young is really a gift. You know, as Einstein says, there is no greater force in the universe than compounding. Absolutely. I also think if you can encourage your son, often universities have investing clubs, much like what Karen and I are doing together with Investing Fix. Some of them invest real money together. Some of them work as we are working with a a model portfolio. But your son will find other people who want to invest in the sorts of things that he wants to invest in. And they'll pool their research and they'll talk about these different options. And he'll learn more and maybe make some friends along the way. As far as the platforms are concerned, he is no doubt familiar with Robinhood. But before he signs up for Robinhood, which has gamification built in that is meant to encourage people to trade frequently, which is not always the best idea, I would also just look at the apps from other platforms out there. There are many, Stash, Acorns, all of the big financial firms, Fidelity, Vanguard, Schwab, they all have apps these days. Um, And he just wants to find one that is going to be user-friendly enough for him to feel comfortable dipping into it on his phone. And that may mean trying out a couple of different types of interfaces. Ellen, I hope that that helps and answers your question. Our next note comes from Jerry. She writes, Dear Jean, I am perhaps a living example of what not to do with your money. I went through a terrible divorce in the 90s and spent over $100,000, all of my savings, on attorney's fees. I didn't enter the workforce until I was in my late 40s, and I'm now 73 years old with no savings. There is a silver lining. 
I own a $2.3 million condo outright. I bought it for a song after my divorce. I still work doing secretarial work, earning around $60,000 per year, plus the 15-ish that I get in social security. And I'd like to keep working as long as I can, but I know it won't last forever. My children and I elected to put my condo into what's commonly known as a Medicaid trust so that I can get on Medicaid one day and still be able to leave my condo to my family. At least that's the gist of how I understand it. But I wonder if there's something else I should be doing in terms of investing. I've been saving around $3,000 a year for the past three years. It's just in my savings account right now. The markets are making me nervous, but I know my son could help me invest that money if you think it's wise. I've already embraced the fact that I will be a burden to my children, but I would love to reduce that burden for them as much as I can. Thank you so much. So Karen, I have a couple of thoughts here and then maybe you'll jump in with me. As far as investing the $3,000 that you've been able to save, I don't know that I would go down that road necessarily. It sounds to me because you have no savings that that is really your emergency stash of cash. And if you need to use it at any point for a medical emergency or anything else, you're going to want to have it at the ready. That's not the money that we invest. But I do wonder about the wisdom of you basically living in all your wealth. And if there are other choices for you where you could potentially, and you will have to take this up with an estate planning attorney because I am not one, but where you could potentially sell this property, buy something smaller and a lot less expensive, get yourself some cash that you could live on so that you don't have to worry about being a burden to your children, so that you have assets that you can draw on while also having a paid off home that you know that you can stay in for the rest of your life. There's a lot of money here. And it seems to me that it's just not being efficiently allocated. Karen, any thoughts? I actually agree with you, you know, as we touched on the beginning of this sort of life cycle of investing. And I think at this point, without the savings, I agree, it isn't the time to invest. It's the time to build some cash reserve for emergencies. So what I would do, Jerry, is not only reach out to your estate planning attorney, I'm a little worried that somebody sold you on a particular kind of trust, but get yourself in the hands of a fee-only financial advisor who can look at your entire situation and make some recommendations without selling you anything. As I said, 2.3 million is a lot of money, It doesn't count your social security. It doesn't count the amount that you are earning. You've got resources. I think you just need to look at the way that you are managing those resources. Actually, Jean, you brought up a good point about having an advisor because to me, the question that popped into my head was, if she sells that very valuable condo and buys something smaller, she's sitting on a big gain that she will then have to pay taxes on. I don't know the answer, Yeah, but it's an important question. It's a very important question, in part because, and this is why I suggested going back to the attorney, 
undoubtedly this condo is now in an irrevocable trust. She can't claw it out of that trust. We don't know how much money she's put into the condo in improvements over the years. I hope that she's saved records of all of those things because that'll save her some money on capital gains taxes. There are other options too. There's a reverse mortgage. I don't know if you can do a reverse mortgage from within a trust like this, but it just bothers me that all of her money is tied up in this asset that she doesn't seem to have access to right now. And simultaneously, she's worried that her kids are going to have to take care of her when with such a valuable asset, that shouldn't be the case. So I agree. I think there are a ton of unanswered questions here. Taxes are a biggie, but it's time to get some answers. And Jerry, thank you so much for writing. Would you do us a favor and please let us know what happens? If you do go down that road of talking to an advisor, of going back and speaking to an estate planning attorney, follow up with us. Let us know what the outcome is. I'm very, very curious. And Karen, thank you so much for sitting in with me today. Thank you for being here. Of course, Jean. Happy to be with you. And Karen and I will see you on Investing Fix if you decide to join us. You can get more information at hermoney.com, but also at investingfix.com. We spell investing fix with two X's at the end. And in today's Thrive, if you are anything like me, you're all about routines because it can be so satisfying to write up a to-do list and then cross things off one by one. But there's a flip side to that routine and it's the feeling you get when you don't accomplish everything. It can be stressful to fall short of your goals and you might feel even more pressure to make up for them. We've all read about the high levels of burnout that women especially have felt over the past few years. Our focus on productivity and the guilt of not meeting our own expectations might actually be driving that burnout. At Her Money, we spoke to a productivity expert on the best ways to let go of the guilt and create a healthier mindset. First, Stop chasing the idea of perfect work-life balance. There is no such thing. It is impossible for us to constantly juggle our health, finances, career, relationships, and hobbies every single day. All those different aspects of our lives will inevitably shift in and out of focus depending on our priorities. So if something falls to the wayside for just a little while, that's okay. Next, Take a close look at where your ideas about productivity are coming from. Do you ever scroll through Instagram and see people you know who somehow have the time to start their own companies, cook homemade meals, go to the gym, and take incredible vacations? Not. Social media might give you the idea that everyone is keeping up with their to-do lists but you. Just remember, social media is a highlight reel. You don't know what's going on behind the scenes. Finally, make sure your self-care is actually self-care and not just another item on the to-do list. It may seem like a good idea to schedule time to read a book or meditate, but it can backfire if self-care ends up feeling like a chore. If you were supposed to work out today, for example, but can't get up the energy, don't force yourself to do it and don't spend the rest of the day feeling guilty for skipping it either. Routines and to-do lists can help us feel a sense of control over our lives, but sometimes it's better to let control just go and accept that life is messy. 
we could all practice a little more self-kindness and forgiveness. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks to Karen Feinerman for breaking down what's happening in today's markets and exactly what we should be doing with our money. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We'd like to thank our sponsors, Edelman Financial Engines and BCU. We produce this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Thanks for joining us, and we'll talk soon.